everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we have a... Deep Conversation. Every so once in a while, I like to bring people to your attention that think differently than the rest of us do. While many of us have our snorkel gear on and we're content just skimming the surface, they're the people that are full scuba. They got the website, I mean, the whole wetsuit on, they've got the oxygen tank and the mask, and they are going down deep. And they can see things we can't. They see the currents that carry us along that we don't even realize are. And then they come back up to the surface to help explain them to us so that we might know how to navigate our world properly. And today we have before you Derek Webster. Now I'm going to get to Derek in just a moment, but I want you to listen into this conversation where we're talking about all things culture and we're talking about his new book called Your Mess, God's Masterpiece. And just to let you know that today's Deep Conversation is sponsored by Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Are you looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area? If so, I highly recommend calling Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate and her team. She comes with years of experience and loves people. She's trustworthy and cares about her clients. I know because I'm one of them. Kathy's my agent. She met with us and learned what we were looking for, then presented us with the best options and helped us find what was right for our family. And she didn't only help us purchase a home, but is even regularly checked in to see how we are doing. She's attentive to your needs and style and comes alongside you to help you discover and find what is best for you. I would recommend giving her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. And without further ado, listen in to our conversation or my conversation with Derek Webster as we talk about all things culture and his new book. Happy listening. Today on Apollos Watered, we are in our Deep Calls to Deep, Cultural Conversations conversations with those who are ministering in this crazy chaotic world and today on the show we have a conversation with my friend Derek Webster now you may or may not know Derek but Derek is the lead pastor of the multi-site multi-ethnic multi-generational Grace Point Church with campuses in Naperville Illinois Plainfield and a new campus launch in Geneva Illinois you can check them out at Grace Point and that's Grace Point with an e on the end dot us and as a teacher, speaker, and pastor, Derek has, he's done a ton of stuff. It's its unbelievable when you start getting into all the things that he's done, but he's planted churches, he's trained leaders, he's advised organizations globally. You can check out his website at winwin, and that's W-E-N-W-Y-N.com, or listen to his podcasts. He's got two of them, Seven Minutes on Earth with the number seven, which he hosts with his wonderful wife, Melissa, and one... 28. Is that how you say it? 128? 128. Yeah. 128. 
which is a series of interviews that he has with mature Christians and their journey toward spiritual maturity. Now, he's released two books. His first book was about city strategy, and it's taught in some universities. Um, he he's launched, he's launches his second book, Your Mess, God's Masterpiece, with Paraclete Press on January 26th of 2021. And this new book is available for pre-order today on Amazon, Books A Million, Christian Book, and Paraclete. Derek, welcome to Apollos Watered. How are you? Travis, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. What an awesome time. I've been really looking forward to having a conversation with you. Now, we've got to meet each other at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and Derek is an amazing guy. He is a church planner. He's pastoring in Naperville, as you've heard about, and Plus Multi-Site, but you've also ministered in a lot of other places. Can you kind of just lay that out? Because it's pretty cool hearing where you've ministered. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. So uh, it's been an interesting road. It's been a really good road. Um, I began uh, really 29 years ago. I'm, I'm working on my 30th year of full-time ministry uh, in California. Then I was in Colorado Springs. Then I spent a decade overseas uh, living in Europe, uh, Germany, Austria, Switzerland. And from that, I began to kind of launch out around the world and then moved back to the U.S. in 2009 led nine Nordic countries for the IMB, which is the International Mission Board, training church planters and leaders on post-modernic cultures and approaches, and then uh, went from there, planted my 10th church while I was in Virginia, then went from there to Brentwood Baptist in Nashville, Tennessee, and then up to the great state of Illinois and Naperworld, Naperville, Illinois, which is a great city here in Chicagoland. You know, hearing your biography already makes me tired <laughs> and not feeling very accomplished in my life. But I think it's cool how God has gifted you and God is, has certainly blessed you in pretty incredible ways. You've been married for how long? Going on 30 years. Yeah. So as long as I've been in ministry is as long as I've been married. Wow. Th yeah. 30 years. How many kids? Three sons, uh, all in their 20s, and I have two beautiful grandchildren. That really freaks me out because you're not that much older than me. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, hey, some of us start really young. Actually, I, so I got married at 19, and my wife was 21. So we met and married inside of six months. Maybe I'll explain some of it. So that that's amazing, but I hope my daughter's not listening to that right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I listen, I don't recommend it. But it worked for us. That that is so awesome. Now you, like you said, you've had a variety of ministry experiences, and it's incredible to hear about church planning. I mean, you said you've planted how many churches? Well, we personally planted ten churches. We fostered. Uh, we coached, uh, man, a few hundred. We we. Uh, but yeah, of the ten churches that we planted, uh, seven are still thriving. So. So yeah, so we, we have a 70% track record. I guess that gives me a C in the church planting world. I think you're doing pretty well. I would give you a higher grade than that. If, <laughs> if, I mean, if we're all being graded on the same curve, I think you're doing pretty well. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. It's a, I tell you what, church planting is hard. It's legitimately hard. And we didn't begin with a core group. We, we uh, didn't have the pleasure of like grabbing Christians and saying, okay, now we're going to brand ourselves as this. We really had to start from zero. And that meant uh, learning how to win people to Jesus, and which, again, there's no guarantees there because it's the Holy Spirit who draws. But uh, we had to figure out quite a bit. And um, our learning curve was pretty steep. You know, when I went to Europe, 
I had seven suits, a suit for every day. And when I got to Europe, I wore one suit in the span of 10 years and it was to my grandfather's funeral. So uh, we, you know, the question is how badly do you want to learn what God is teaching? And we just, um, you know, we, we felt like, okay, God, you have us here for a reason. And so we want to be open to what you're saying. And that meant some hard lessons that, you know, I say, you know, that God really believed in me more than I did. And, um, and I think that's true in life. You know, I think God sometimes believes in us a lot more than we tend to believe in ourselves. Uh, you know, you're talking about ministering in, in Germany and you said you took so many suits over there. And I, I've, I've, I, it's my contention that a lot of what's happening in Europe is migrating its way over to the United States. That's an apt contention. That's a, that's an accurate depiction. I put it at seven years. I talked about this in my first book, Unlocking the Soul of the City. But if you think about the innovation bell curve, um, you know, for product launches, there's uh, innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, right, all the way to laggards. Um, there are certain countries, there are places of influences uh, that that are that are more influential than others. So every place is equal. Not every place is equally influential, and. Um, I remember when I first heard about postmodernity, it was in Europe, and saw an article on it. And then seven years later, I saw that same word appear for the first time in the Times, uh, not, the, not the New York Times, but uh, Time Magazine. And, um, and it's been pretty consistently true in terms of worldview or philosophy. You know, f- postmodernity started in French philosophy, right? It didn't start, uh, even though Americans kind of ran with it in the 60s, but it really started there. So, um, yeah, I think we trend where Europe, uh, what mainly Western Europe goes and Western Europe, for whatever reason, for a long time, had a longing to, to be Nordic in their approach. I think some of that is changing, but, um, but yeah, there's, there's certainly a tip of the spear in terms of world culture and influence. What do you mean by the Nordic? What do you mean by that? Well, when you think about places like Sweden, Norway, Denmark, um, uh, Estonia, uh, Iceland, uh, Finland, what you think about are places that not only have a high egalitarian view, both in politic and in gender and in a load of other things, but they've historically also had a fairly low view of God. So, um yeah, I think Estonia has been ranked in the top five of the most agnostic places on the planet for the last 20 years running. Um, Sweden, though, it was a long time ago, a great safe haven, has for a long time been functionally agnostic. So the whole idea is, uh, is there a place that's great to live, that has a great social structure, um, where it seems as if government kind of steps in for a lot and people seem happy? Um and so Nordic countries have really led the way in that projection. It's not necessarily a true projection, but it's a projection. There's a book that came out a number of years ago where, uh, and I forget, I'm sorry, the name of the book escapes me, but uh, a sociologist uh, went over to Denmark uh, because his wife was sent there. And he started to notice that a place that was ranked as one of the happiest on earth was also one of the least religious places. And he cited a story of two policemen who knew each other for 20 years. Um, and one night after work, they get hammered drunk. And one policeman turns to the other and he says, I got to tell you something. I've never told anybody. And the guy goes, what? He says, I believe in God. And the sociologist later in talking about 
talking to that policeman, he said, uh, so what happened? He said, well, I was relieved. My friend didn't stop being friends with me because we'd invested 20 years into our relationship. <laughs> it took him that much courage even to confess a belief in God on that level. Now, that's an extreme example, but um, there's a longing, there's a myth out there that says you'll be happiest if you can just have a human-centered view on life, and if you can just engineer your happiness. And uh, European nations, more than any other nation, have really uh, tried that. Now, do you think, how do you think that philosophy is permeating the United States? And, and honestly, I think for many of us, when I, when I think of secularization, which is what I think of when I hear you talk about that, these secular cultures that are what Oz Guinness calls cut flower societies, where we have a base within a Judeo-Christian ethic, and yet we've been cut from that. Um, but how do you see that permeating to the United States, that mindset, that secularization, that post-modernity? And even then, can you help our listeners or define what that is? Because whenever time I hear post-modernity, I always want to know what people mean. <laughs> oh, spoken like an academic. I love that. That's uh, You're exactly right. So some would call it late modernity, right? The real question is, is it is there really post-modern philosophy or is it just late modern philosophy? However you define it, the first time I ever heard it was actually from Ravi Zachariah in 2000 in Amsterdam at a Billy Graham uh, conference. But essentially what it posits is uh, there is such a thing as truth, but it's only absolute to the truth teller, to the perspective of the person. So um, all truth is subjective and objective to the person speaking it. Therefore, no, no one else's truth can be challenged. So what is... Uh, let me give you first what's favorable about that. What, what it first does is it says, okay, well, there's clearly a slant on objective truth depending on who's looking at it. And that's, I think, true. I think that's objectively true. And if you think about God, you know, all truth is God's truth. God is the, the author of truth. Therefore, God is a person. Therefore, God is subject, right? It's subjective to the person. So even our view of objective truth is based on the subjective truth of God. However, most of that is really semantics. Um, when all truth becomes relative to the person and all ideas of an objective truth go out the window, suddenly you can't make any arguments anymore. You can't, all you're arguing for is your point of view. You're not arguing on anything that is foundationally true for people. And uh, the U.S. Uh, has really kind of embraced and ran with this. You know, it, some of this goes back to Schaefer's uh, steps. I don't know how familiar you are with Francis Schaeffer, but he starts with philosophy and he says, eventually it makes its way down to the kitchen table, right? It makes its, uh, any idea goes from, if it makes it past the university level, eventually it'll make its way through high art and it'll make its way through the government. And eventually you're on the Jerry Springer show, but everybody functionally believes that philosophy. So the question to ask is in pop art or, you know, uh, social life is the functional philosophy Whatever I believe is true is true for me. And the answer to that is yes, in spades. When we moved to Europe in 2001, early 2001, um, the number one song on the radio was an old, tra well, it's a Travis song. It wasn't old then, but it's old now, called Side. And the chorus was, there is no wrong, there is no right, the circle only has one side. It was, it was uh, philosophy in pop culture. So. 
that has permeated our politics. We can't believe anyone, right? It's all about how they slant it. So now what happens? Now you can't believe your pictures because they're all filtered. You can't believe your videos because they're fake. You can't believe your media because they're biased. You can't believe. So what do you do? Well, you jump into the places where you think people agree with you to manufacture the truth that you want to hear. And that's a really dangerous place to be. And that's unfortunately where we are. Now, I don't think postmodernity can sustain itself. I think academia is saying postmodern, postmodernity is really dead because you have to talk. You have to have a basis on talking. But the cat's out of the bag. So it's not going to go back in the bag anytime soon. So the question is what's coming in the future? And I'm calling it now. I'm saying, well, what's ahead is humanity has to agree on values. They're never going to say there's an objective truth, but they're going to have to agree that there are certain values that are better for humanity. And I think uh, Christians or the Christian conversation is going to be able to re-enter and re-influence the larger picture when we say, look, here are the values you need to uh, use. And when they give a why, we can say, well, through history, these have clearly been better for people. You know, when people have greater integrity, it's amazing how economies rise. And so uh, now the challenge is going to be, well, how did you arrive at that conclusion? And the Christian says, God, right? We, we, it came from outside of us. We didn't create it. That's, we know that's not going to be believed because it's already been challenged, but that's our bridge. So I think we have an opportunity coming up when we start talking about, well, how, how does anyone find agreement? How will we ever have a nation that's even remotely close to unified again? You know, and, uh, and the answer is we can't continue on the trajectory we've been on. Well, I, I, I agree, especially when I think of, for most of us that are of our age range, um, we've grown up in a culture where it was a Christendom culture, meaning that Christianity was a majority and it had a power socially. But I was uh, in a, listening to another podcast where it had two um, evangelical Americans and two evangelical Brits. And it was very different because two of them were saying, you know, we have no cultural power where in Britain, but you guys do. And that changes your approach. Because in many ways, I feel like a lot of our issues that we have from a political uh, sphere right now are rooted in the fact that not that we like one party or another. I think it's more of a fear of loss of influence or the fear of the possibility of persecution and our faith becoming hard. Um, Yeah. I mean, you have to first be convinced of who you belong to. Yeah. And I think the challenge is um, people would like to uh, believe that they believe that they belong, you know, uh, but, but they've just got a lot of questions. One of the benefits of moving to Europe is what do you, you know, and you go start a church in a different language. And by the way, you can't borrow any Christians. There's not enough people there that are Christians. Okay. So the benefit of that when you look around, you went, well, socially, they're great. They have great orphanages. It's all secular, but it's, they're great orphanages. They've got a great social system. If you say, I'm going to go out and minister to the poor, the poor is very relative in the place that we lived. We live in a place called Vorarlberg in Austria, which was like the winter playground of Europeans. So, you know, uh, if you thought you were going to find an inn through those means, uh, in the areas that I lived, at least, they had socially engineered their way through those needs without Christ. So then you start to ask the question, well, what is it that I offer? 
And one of the beauties of being in that context was I, I rediscovered, oh, no, no, Jesus really does make all the difference because you can have everything and have nothing. And um, what we discovered was that was absolutely true. And it was a rediscovery. Once I went, oh, I get it. So like, we tend to forget this, but you know, rich people are miserable too. And poor people are miserable. Rich people are miserable. Um, you can be lonely in a crowded room. It doesn't matter where the room is in the world. And so once you start understanding, oh, that not only is scripture completely true when it describes that, but it describes it in any context. Now, suddenly you're freed up to go, okay, now we can deal with, with what's real. I'm, I'm looking for inroads, but the inroads all exist in the human condition and in the existential crisis happening behind the eyes. And if I, if I can address that in a, on a, in a really human way, in a way that kind of doesn't have to wade through the Christendom baggage, um, I can now begin to connect with people and address some of the anxieties and longings that exist in all of us. Do, do you find, or did you find when you were in Europe, that was in some ways easier because the, the influence of the church, I'm sure was still present, but not as prevalent or present as it is in the United States. Was it easier then to share in that regard and speak to that condition in Europe? Um, I don't know about easier to share, but I would say less confusing for the person doing the sharing. Um, Maybe the best analogy I can think of is when I first went to college, I went to a Christian college um, in Abilene, Texas, and I thought it was a Christian college. And when I got there, the president said, some of you think you're coming to a Christian college. It's not. It's a college with some Christians in it, which is a very different thing. And uh, I left that college and I went to a secular, whatever that means, but, but you know, a non-Christian college. Um, in my second semester of my freshman year. And while the context was more difficult, it was also not pretending to be something it wasn't. And so that made it easier from my perspective because I didn't feel, for lack of a better term, bait and switched. I didn't feel like um, I was presented with a mirage and was chasing after the wrong thing. So I, I think what what it does, what a lack of pretense does for you, and I think this is true in general, is it allows you to speak somewhat honestly. You know, uh, the other thing is, in some ways, Europe is rediscovering Jesus because when you try to reduce Jesus down to any other God and any other approach, he just refuses to do that. He sticks out like a sore thumb, and that's because he's real. And, um, you know, people are going, he can't be real, right? Like, you can't, can't see him. It's not possible that he's real. But then when you start going, no, no, actually, I discovered that he was real. I mean, the thing that blows Europeans' minds away is, wait, you chose to be a Christian? I thought you were just raised that way. It's like, no. And, and, and once they realize, oh, I see, this is not cultural. There's something else going on here because you're not weird enough to be locked up. <laughs> There's something else going on. Um, I think in, in that way, it makes the conversations perhaps a little easier. But if you're asking, is it easier to initiate conversations? I don't think it is. I think it's in some ways just as hard or harder. So with all of the immigrant things that are going on and such an influx of immigrants coming from the Middle East into Germany, and I know it's been some time since you've been there. I mean, the refugee crisis happened after you came back to the U.S. That's right. Isn't that correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. Have you seen a shift? Because I'm seeing a shift as you're seeing 
uh, Middle Easterners go into Germany. I know there were what a million refugees that went in, and yep. yeah, that changes the culture because you're interacting with people who are not keeping the religion to themselves. I mean, it's outward, it's overt. Uh, are you hearing any interactions or approach that's shifting within the churches that are there that are trying to plant that are doing outreach? Are you hearing anything about that? Well, uh, you know, I go back about every year. Um, half my family lives there, uh, so. Uh, here's here's what I would say. I would say that there's there's two responses. The first response is um, how can we minister to this group of people who are coming in? There's an opportunity here. You know, anytime you're on the move and things are in flux, you have an opportunity to question. You know, ask and answer some big questions. And there's been a lot of mission strategies based on that. Some churches have embraced that. Um, I think somewhat with mixed results because the thing that people forget is actually when you move in some ways you become more like the culture, your, your mother culture, your host culture than you were when you were living there. Um, when I first moved to Germany, I became more Californian than I ever was in California. Uh, so I found my, I remember one night saying, I'm saying dude way too much. Where did that even come from? Um, and so, right. So you have these enclaves, of immigrants there. Listen, there are Turks in Germany who have lived there for 40 years and still don't speak German. So, uh, we have to be careful of what we assume about those coming into the country. The other thing that, that the, that particular crisis has really forced on culture and it's particularly on, on Christian culture in Europe is what does it mean to be French or to be German or to be English? What does that mean? And then what does it mean to be a Christian beyond that? Because we are citizens of heaven first. So everyone longs for all nations. We all talk about that. But we also carry our ethnicities into churches. And that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. You know, God created us with our ethnicity. He created us in our context so we can belong to a greater family, but still bring our uniqueness. And I would say that it's just taking some time for people to figure out how to celebrate the individual and not make assumptions of that individual based on their cultural heritage. Mm. And it's changing. I, you know, hearing all of that and seeing how much it's changing and, and that so many different groups and so many different cultures are coming in. And I, I just see it as a great opportunity for the gospel because it seems that it's enabling people to hear about the gospel that have never heard it. And also other cultures are coming to faith in Christ. And yet we're seeing a shift in our own culture where in my uh, conversation with Daniel Yang, he was saying that God's brought the nations to us. And we used to think that it was for them, for us to reach them, but it's actually because many of these new refugees and immigrants are coming in are Christian. They're reaching us. Because yeah. the culture has become largely secular in, in many different ways, although it has a huge still Christian bent and influence. I mean, do you think, how do you think that's influenced the church today? Just the, and I'm not talking about the immigrants, I'm talking about all of these different cultural influences, such as post-modernity. How is it influencing us here in the United States, yet we have this vestige or still influence of a Christian subculture that's there? How, how does that? How does that affect us for us to be able to minister here effectively? Oh, that's a great question. Um, my brain immediately went to an incident that happened to me years ago when I was in China. And I was in a, a fairly rural aspect of China. I was asked to talk on leadership. And um, 
someone had heard that I knew about, you know, post-modernity and asked if I would speak on that. And I said, well, no, it's not going to impact the people in this room. You're, you're a little further behind in that. And, um, and then I stopped because I saw the disappointment on the individual's face and it was a packed room. And I said, okay, how many people here believe post-modernity impacts them? And 95% of the room's hands went up. And, um, I just remember at that point being a little stunned and realizing that the velocity of globalization was much faster than I anticipated. Uh, you know, you're asking a question about domestic mission. What does it mean to be the target group for mission? And what does it mean to be on mission in this geographic space? And, and I think, first, all mission is inherently local. Um, so whether they come to you or whether you go to them, it's really about geography and proximity. And, um, and I think it's also about valuing the voice that's coming your way. Um, now that's problematic because not every family values outside voices, right? And so um, how do you value a voice from the outside going, hey, listen, I'd like to introduce you to someone that you actually think you know, but you don't know. And uh, I think that boils, it's going to boil down to the person. So in some ways, uh, globalization has become the great leavener. Um, it has become, you know, I don't blink twice to see uh, residents of Naperville from South India. It doesn't, uh, it's not odd. It's not, you know, we're a multi-ethnic church. We have people from Sri Lanka. We have people from all kinds of places. We're not even trying to be. Um, it's not a part of our strategy. We didn't stand and go, we have to be, sit down and go, we have to be multi-ethnic. It's just, you're just reaching people where you are. And the question then becomes, how are they valued? Um, do you force them to make leaps to you or do you value and value others in the spaces that they're at? And I would say that's a question right now in the general church in the U.S. that's probably up for debate. Um, I don't know, honestly, how that's going to tip. I because, and I say that only because there's so much reactionism right now and it's so fractured and so tied into people's political views and their radio programs and their TV shows and their YouTube channels. And there's just so many silos and so many echo chambers um, that, uh, you know, in some ways I think the pastoral prophetic voice is, is perhaps more important than ever. We've had too many guys in the past who've gone out to Christians trying to pick a fight between Christians. And, uh, and what we need right now are people who don't go out and pick fights with Christians. We need people who are willing to be prophets and uh, be, I think, prophetical pastors to their churches and go, look, this is what scripture says. This is the truth we're all having to apply equally, me included. And so let's be that because that's who we are in Christ. Why do you, I, I totally agree with you. And I, I know before uh, we started the show today, I was talking to you about some of the, the placements that I see with uh, there's certain pastoral placement firms. And they said that one of the, the major ones said that 50% of their placements now are non-Bible college or non-seminary trained. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that. But what I'm seeing is a lot of churches are looking for CEOs and they're looking for celebrity pastors. And they're not looking for those prophetic voices. They, because I think we've lost our prophetic witness or our ability 
to be a prophetic witness for a variety of reasons within our culture. But I think that it's imperative as we're seeing a cultural shift that we have to recover that prophetic voice. How do you think we we go about that? Or I mean, do you even agree? Do you disagree? Or do you think that we we don't have it? I mean, you've already said that you think we need to have that prophetic voice. How do you think we recover that in our culture, especially when we have a culture that's all about the celebrity, all about the silos, as you said, because people are making you fit into one of two camps. Either you're in this camp or you're in that camp. There's not a lot of nuance, not a lot of in-betweeners, at least not from a political place, because that's not where our culture wants it to be. And I'm finding more and more people that have pastors, leaders that are saying, no, there has to be something different. And we see God doing something different. And we need to speak to that because I, my main, I maintain that part of the responsibility of this show and other shows like it, it's to be that prophetic witness because we've lost it. We're so busy catering to the needs of the people, trying to fill the pews, trying to keep the organization alive, that we will water things down because we're afraid that it's not going to bring people in. And instead of speaking real truth to the culture, we've either become completely withdrawn, legalistic in our, in our little bunkers, or we've become so compromised with the world that we've lost any type of fidelity to scripture and truth to it. And instead, we have to be boldly proclaim the message of Jesus, even if it means the loss of influence within the culture and a political power in order that the message of Christ might be maintained and continue to go forward. I mean, what do you think? I know I've been talking, you talk. No, no, I, I, I'm just been listening. I, yeah, I, I agree on many levels. I think, um, first we have to detach fame from greatness. I think, well, uh, how about rediscover greatness or what success is? Have a- well, yeah, I mean, I would, I, I would say, you know, when, when you're talking, well, first, when you detach fame from greatness, what happens is you're not going after popularity, right? You're, you're, but uh, the other side of that is there's some people who view themselves as Martin Luther. And there's a real danger in trying to self-identify, your, you know, to put a label on yourself of, oh, this is who I am. That's God's job. That's not, that's not your job. God, it, when God tells you that you're Martin Luther, congratulations, you'll be Martin Luther. But in the meantime, what's your job? Your job is to be you. And your job is to be biblically true, period. I get. I think that the, the challenge is that you have some uh, pastors that don't actually preach the text. What they preach is their opinions, and they use the text as justification to talk about what they really want to talk about. And there are other pastors who don't, they preach the text, but they just don't necessarily believe it actually has power to speak into culture. And so what happens is they generate offense. They, they, gener- they generate uh, being offensive or being uh, uh, less than kind. So it impacts their Christian character, but they do that in the name of being prophetic when in fact they're just kind of jerks. And so I think what we need are men and women to stand up and say, no, I'm first a child of God. My character is going to reflect Jesus. You know, when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, he wasn't kidding. So does my character reflect a peacemaker? Um, am I full of mercy 
you know, we're going through a series on the Beatitudes, which is probably why that's so top of mind for me right now. But do I have integrity? Do I have humility? Am I completely reliant on God? How much ego is involved in this thing? Um, no, I think it's it's a great time for asking those kind of questions. I think there are some churches who want celebrity pastors because they think it'll drive up numbers and that guarantees their survival. I think there are others. I think there's an allergic reaction uh, against uh, celebrity pastors. Am I getting someone who's so into their incredible capacity to communicate that they actually will fall down on character or perhaps they're not a great leader? And we've just seen a a whole recent spat of phenomenal communicators and uh you know they would say they have prophetic voices we were just talking about one before we we went on air uh who in fact just really lacked character they 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 weren't allowing their character to be transformed i think as more people get up and close to us i think what they're really just saying is man are you are you more like jesus than you were yesterday is there a an arc to your character or is it all just uh, an ego stroke is that you've just found a nice little niche uh, that you've slapped Jesus on. So you feel great about your own intellect or your own sense of indignation or your own fill in the blank. And um, I think the ego is very much alive in the world right now. And, and we have to be really careful of it. I couldn't agree with you more. And and I think in our marketing saturated culture. And it's something that I think we all have to deal with because we're trying to figure out how to make the message of Christ known. And yet it's this prophetic nature that we're, we have, and there's that always that juxtaposition between the two. And, and it takes a, a great deal of self-awareness, I think, to step out and say, no matter what's going to happen, I'm going to preach the message of Christ, but not in to be a jerk, not to be a celebrity, but just because of one's love for God, one's love for people and the desire to honor Christ above all things, I, I, I think you've hit the nail right on the head, especially separating, and I love what you said, separating fame from greatness, because I do think we have a wrong definition of what greatness is. We put yeah. greatness in downloads and in hits and in followers rather than holiness and surrender and righteousness and faithfulness. Yeah. Those those things and, and the things that we can't see. You know, when Jesus says close, you know, if you want to pray to the father, close the door and it, 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 to your father and pray to him in secret. And he sees yeah. it. And today it's like, nope, we got to tweet about it. We got to put photos. And again, but how do you juxtapose that? And let me ask you this. Let me ask you this because you're, you're in this. I mean, you've, yeah. you've written a book and, and we're going to get to that in just a moment, but how do you as a pastor juxtapose or navigate this culture that is marketing and celebrity and maintaining integrity while wanting to help people, how do you balance those two? Or is it possible? How do we go about that? Because we're not advocating being monks and withdrawing from complete society. We're saying we want to make a difference. We want to engage, but how do we go about doing that? Do you have any suggestions or pointers or what have you done? Yeah. Yeah. And I would even go further and say that the monks were wrong for, for withdrawing from society or, 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 or kind of holding themselves up in, in walls. And I know that that's an easy thing to do, but that's, you know, that's one of the ways that you get genetic drift. If you just enter, you know, enter, you, know you just say, okay, we're just going to stay contained. Um, so here's uh, there, you know, I have a couple of checks. So the first is uh, I try to always remember that what I do is not the same thing as who I am. And God, in this case, because of my vocation, God determines 
what I'm doing right now. So if someone's like, you know, well, why you? Like, why are you the guy up there preaching? My first response is, great question. I don't know. You know, take that up with God. But here's what I do know. God has said it's going to be you. And so um, I'm going to do this as best as I can. And where I'm wrong, I'm going to say I'm wrong. I'm not going to pretend to be right or or think that I know something I don't know. Um, my particular position calls for having vision. I think it calls for having high accountability. I embrace accountability. I don't like being surrounded by yes men. At the same time, I don't need to be surrounded by no men. I just want to be surrounded by uh, men uh, and women who uh, have bought into the vision and really for being Christ-like on the journey, you know, God has, God established, if you think about it this way, I always think to myself, okay, no mission, no Christian, no mission, no church. So the best way that I can live is to be on mission. And that should keep me in context. If I'm doing it right, it should give me a deep love for God's church because they're moving in the same direction. And it should keep my prayer life vibrant because, you know, (laughs) whatever point at the journey in is what you're praying, right? Sometimes you're praying help and sometimes you got time for long prayers. It just depends on what horizon you're looking at. And uh, that allows you, I think, a, a greater capacity to appreciate it. I think it helps a little bit that I've been around the block a little bit. You know, I'm I'm not new to this, um, but that doesn't make it old in any way. It's it just, I think it gives me a little bit more perspective. I've seen enough guys... Um, even guys that I've admired, you know, fall from grace that, and I, you, you just, after a while you think, Lord, I don't want that to be me. And, um, you know, it's a little bit like being married, you know, sometimes you, you wake up in the morning and you go, oh, it's you again. And sometimes you wake up in the morning, you look at your spouse and you go, oh, it's you again. And, um, it's the same phrase with very different meanings, but what keeps you in it? Well, sometimes what keeps you in it is if this thing's going south, it's not going to be because of me. <laughs> At other times, what keeps you in it is, I just want to show you how much I love you. And I just finding ways to appreciate you. Um, and so I'm going to exercise some creativity here um, so that you don't think I ever take you for granted. So I think it's very similar in that way. Maybe that's one of the reasons why Jesus kept using the metaphor of bride to husband. You know, it's, it's very relational in that way. And, you know, as you're saying that, I'm hearing my wife in my head and I'm trying to figure out which response it would be for her. I don't know whether to apologize or to not apologize for that. (laughs) I mean, I look at her and I'm like, oh, it's you. And I'm, (laughs) he's the one going, oh, it's you. you. That's right. (laughs) It's just part of married life, you know, and it's, and I love the metaphor that's there and and you're hearing all that. But, you know, we've talked about a lot of stuff and, and I, I'm hoping that our people can kind of keep up because I really do feel like we're drinking from a fire hose. Um, but I want to talk about your book and it's coming out on January 26th. I love your title, your mess, God's masterpiece, because we do often think if we are a mess, there's no way of getting around that. We are not who we want to be. And I think with all of our social media, with all of the things around us, it becomes even more piled on, you know, you look at what other yeah. people are doing and people are always putting their best foot forward. I mean, you've seen videos, I'm sure like I have where these 
influencers say that it took them 30 minutes to get the right photo that captures everything brilliantly. And, and yet, you know, that how they really look is very different and people yep. put their best foot forward on social media and all of this. And we always feel like we're not measuring up. We feel like we're less than we feel like we're, we're broken. And then we hear more and more what we need, what we need to do. And it just becomes to the point where it's overwhelming because and I like to look and liken it to going to a grocery store. Like there's all these things that can help me, but I go in and I need cereal and there's 500 different cereals and my stress level increases in, uh, just outrageously. And I'm like, well, where do I get help? Where do I really find, I, I don't need so many choices. I need to break it down and just see myself the way that God wants me to be seen. I, I, so looking at the book, just looking at the title, I mean, really, what was the impetus that you had for writing this book? Well, uh, you know, I'm a pastor of a church and um, we were going through uh, through a series on Joseph and I started to realize that Joseph's story is uh, so many of our stories. We tend to think that Joseph, you know, he's born into the greatest family of all time, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Like you don't get a more direct line. You don't get a more God interactive family than that. Um, and so we think, well, he had every advantage open to him and yeah, he got sold by his brothers, but ultimately second in charge of Egypt. So it's all good. But the truth is he was born with massive insecurity. Like he grew up with massive insecurities. His, you know, his mom passed when he was young. He was his dad's favorite because of who his mom was. He lived in a blended and broken home. The sibling dynamics were off the chart complex. His dad, uh, you know, to play favorites. Uh, his dad is was the product of his parents playing favorites, right? His mom loved him. His dad loved his brother. Um, and so what I realized was, you know, there's so many that feel like Joseph. We were born uh, into aspects of our lives that we like. But the other truth is that we feel as if we're stuck. We're in this mess. And we're not sure how to get out of it. You know, Joseph had these longings in his life. He had dreams. Now, he was uh, dumb in that he decided to, it was really necessary for him to share those dreams, you know, but, but it's so bad that his brothers want to kill him. I mean, if, we all have family issues, but how many of us have our siblings? How bad is that? Well, what's interesting about that is, you know, and of course they have this debate. Um, what's there's a, I talk about this in the book, but Joseph, think about, uh, what it means to be, I don't know, 17 or something. And your dad sends you to go find your brothers in a place where your brothers had slaughtered uh, a whole bunch of people a, a few years before, and you can't find them there. You're wandering around. We think probably either it's a theophany or an angel or someone, but someone knew where his brothers were. It's not like there was a sign out that says, go to Dothan. And, and so someone directed him to Dothan the whole time. He is traveling and he is traveling many, many miles in hostile territory. He is wearing the coat of many colors that boggles the mind. What possible reason could you have? It's not the only coat he would have owned. He would have had a traveling coat. So what possible reason could you have? other than to reassure yourself that you're special and when your brothers see you to let them know that you're a pretty special guy yourself. 
So we tend to think Joseph is just this doe-eyed innocent who's not contributing to his own mess. But in fact, he does contribute to his own mess. His brothers, some of them want to kill him. And there's, there's a historical reason for that. It has to do with family dynamic. But then other brothers want him to live. So their best solution is get him out of our sight and lie to dad. What's wild about all of that, you know, because now Joseph's like, well, now what's my life about? I have these longings to serve God. I guess now I'm nothing. Then he does the right thing and he's punished for doing the right thing. And you see these God moments. God is just refining his character um, with each moment. You know, there's a two-year gap between the time that he gives the interpretation to the baker and the time the baker talks to Pharaoh. And the last words out of Joseph's mouth are, hey, would you remember me when you get to, when you get back? <laughs> Two years, nothing. <laughs> and so Joseph goes to this, and by the way, God is in all of these moments. And the scripture is clear. The Old Testament story is clear over and over again that God is in these moments. And so the question becomes, why? Well, God is actually going to fulfill the longing of Joseph's heart, which is a longing for significance. But he's going to do it by working on Joseph's character in the process. And ultimately, Joseph comes to a place where he has to be totally dependent on God. God, no other agendas. I'm just going to serve you, just going to follow you. Now, suddenly, it's his big moment. And uh, let's dress you up like an Egyptian because you're going to go tell the Pharaoh his dream. He hasn't interpreted a dream for two years that we know of. He doesn't even know if he can interpret the Pharaoh's dream. And he has to stand in front of the most powerful man of that, wor- of that world at that time and say, I don't have the power to interpret dreams, but God does. So tell me your dream. And if God decides, then I'll have an answer for you. To get to that moment, to seize that moment in his character is huge. Then just when you think, well, end of story, cut, scene, right? Let the credits roll. I'm out of here. Now God wants to bring his whole family into healing. He wants to restore these family relationships. But the problem is Joseph doesn't know if his family's changed. His family dynamics are just as complex as they were before. And that's just like so many of us, right? Lord, I have these longings. Will I ever get there? God goes, do you really want me to get you there? <laughs> you know, be careful what you ask for. And, um, you know, I believe in you more than you do, but I'd love to be significant. Okay, you have no idea how significant, but I might just take you through a cistern and through a jail to get there. Then you get there and you think, I've left the old life behind. Remember, Joseph is a cultural Egyptian. Um, He dresses like an Egyptian. He talks, he knows the Egyptian uh, customs. By the way, where did he learn all of that? He learned all of that in prison and, and as a slave. So all of that had purpose. God wasted nothing in Joseph's mess. Nothing, nothing was wasted. Then what's amazing is he now has to exercise discernment and the, the, the story of Joseph is split into two halves, right? One whole half is spent trying to figure out um, how he is going to get relational healing with his family. And, um, and I just think that's just so many of us. Like we make it through one place, we think we're doing well, and this thing from the past like presses all the buttons they don't even recognize him. And now he has to, as a new person, exercise discernment. And so I talk in the book about how he does that. 
Ultimately, he gives him healing. Here's the kicker. At the end of Joseph's life, just when you think it's a happy ending, and by the way, spoiler alert, it is a happy ending. Uh, his, uh, when, when their father, Jacob, dies, they're all living in Egypt. They're in a great place. He's functionally in charge, even though he's second com- in command. He's made the Pharaoh more money than the Pharaoh's ever needed. When Jacob dies, the family, knowing Joseph, his integrity, his character, he's a new person, all of this, they're still like, I bet he's going to come after us now. So he still doesn't really get the benefit of the doubt. And he, and he sees that, he's bothered by it, but he knows how to navigate it. Joseph at the end of Joseph's life is not the same Joseph as the Joseph in the beginning of Joseph's life, but he's a Joseph who has learned to embrace the significance that he knew was there and that he actually longed for and that was only found in following God. And um, so, yeah, I I think the whole book really stemmed from me looking at this world of dysfunctional, broken relationships and asking, well, how does God functionally bring us to a place of wholeness and healing? How does that actually work? And Joseph's life, I think, was the best carrier. It was the best example. When you unpacked his life, really, when you truly read the scripture and looked at it, suddenly it was like, oh, this is what God does. Oh, that makes sense. I am amazed at taking a look and juxtaposing that against our modern society. Take Joseph and you put him in our modern predicament, or at least not in modern predicament, but modern description of relationships. I mean, yeah. it, 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 it's pretty incredible when you see this comparison and you're like, wow, you're, it, it takes on a whole new level. But what I'm amazed at is you're talking about his development of his, 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 uh, his uh, character and hearing about how God refined him and the suffering that he went through and how he comes out on the other side. And yet I think that has a great influence on our perspective as well. I, I remember seeing a quote from John Ortberg where he mentioned that suffering, you know, if you ask people that the reason they don't believe and they'll say suffering, and if you ask people who do believe when they got most closest to a Jesus, it was because of suffering. Yeah. And it's amazing how God uses that tool and uses the brokenness in our life. And and like you said, he doesn't waste one bit of it. Not a single, uh, for the people who are listening, wherever in the world you are, not, there's not a tiny, there's not the tiniest portion of your circumstances or your frustrations that God, your mess, that God cannot use in his masterpiece in your life. And it'll be unique to you, but you really have to trust him through it. Um, you know, there's something we were talking about nations earlier. Here's the other thing. How do you reach the most powerful nation on the earth that's a polytheistic religion? Especially if you're an obscure tribe. How do you how do you do that? And yet here God is going, not only will I fulfill Joseph's longing, but guess what? I'm going to bear mission. I'm going to bear witness and testimony to the world because Joseph at no point becomes polytheistic. Even though he's a functional Egyptian, he at no point is polytheistic. And remember, his father-in-law was one of the head priests of the day in a polytheistic religion. And yet, when he married, the, his wife married into a monotheistic uh, 
relationship, a, a monotheistic uh, worldview, a Christianity, a relationship with this God, this Yahweh that Joseph had been journeying with. Joseph never lost that. And the beauty of that is at the end of Joseph's life, you know, when, or, well, really when Jacob is blessing his kids, you know, here are these two half-breeds, these two half Egyptian, um, you know, half uh, uh, Israeli is not the right term, but, you know, uh, um, half uh, chosen people of God, half Israelite, and um, certainly two ethnicities. And yet God is grafting the nations into his family and they receive the direct covenantal blessing. They, uh, Jacob says, they're not my grandsons, they're my sons. They're, they're one of the 12 tribes. So um, think about the power of a God to do that on a scale, on that level. It's, it's, it's the, beauty, the beautiful thing about Joseph is it's redemption on so many levels. It just, it drops your virtual jaw in the light of who God is and what God can accomplish um, if we'll trust and obey. And if we're willing to go through a dark night of the soul, if we're willing to say, Lord, I don't know what's happening, but I trust you through it. I believe in you. What is it that you see in me that is getting in my way from being more like you? You know, and, and God, I think God longs to do these, have these redemption moments on a scale that I just don't think we can begin to understand. No one person on this planet, no one knows what their influence truly is. That's an encouragement. Uh, but, you know, there's another layer to that as is, is I'm hearing you talking about it. And I see a parallel with Daniel. Both of them are in foreign lands. Both of them are forced to live within those societies. I mean, Daniel, he's going to have to be castrated. He's going to have to go to the basically pagan seminaries. And yet he's thriving as a monotheistic Jew in the middle of a you know, polytheistic Babylon. And I see Joseph as the same way. And I see them both as lessons for us, because in many ways, we're living in Egypt, we're living in exile, we're living in Babylon today. And we have to learn how to, as the world is shifting, secularization, as globalization is coming in, we have to learn to find our way and navigate this as Christ followers. I mean, do you, do you think that's true? Do you think that's, I mean, what lessons can we learn from that? I mean, you've already talked about a bunch of them. Yeah, 100% true. And, and you know, Daniel, of course, is the great statesman. Um, and through through many empires and, and empire massive regime change, um, his devotion to God is just so constant. He doesn't come, you know. His story. What's interesting is it doesn't come with the family dynamic. It comes with a a friendship dynamic, but it doesn't come with the the brokenness of family and the. It's not as. I guess what I would say is Daniel's mess is far more contextual, uh, and Joseph's mess is not just contextual; it's personal. And it well relates. Right, because he's dealing with such a family dynamic. I mean, and there, there's parallels, but there's also massive differences between them. So there's not a one-to-one ratio. But yeah, exactly. But I think what you're doing, and I think now I'm seeing that more within the context. You're looking at this within the context of all those relationships that we have. That's right. Which are so frustrating. I there was a TED talk that was given uh, not too long ago, and it was uh, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it was about the largest or longest study of one set sample group in American history. It was a 75-year study of one group. Hmm. And the question is, what was the secret to happiness? And I think they started off with 10,000 people. Um, and it was out of Boston, um, looking at uh, Harvard and, and people from all different economic groups and educational groups. And they said, is it happiness 
finances? Is it status? Is it power? Is it, it was none of those things. After 75 years, it came down to one thing and one thing alone. And it, and it really supports your book. It's about the quality of the relationships in one's life. Yeah. And I think that is something that we've lost today because when we talk about our world, we, we've been cut off from family, part of that's transportation, job placement, um, you name it. I mean, we can all point to a variety of factors that have caused the disintegration of the family and a host of the relationships. And we're seeing how social media just reinvigorates certain belief systems that are already in place. But to find those relationships and to reconcile them or to develop them, that is the very difficult task, but the most rewarding. And it seems that's what you're advocating for is not only God is touching us, but he's enabling us to touch, to be healed and to use our experiences to help bring healing to those around us. Yeah. God is relational, right? God in three persons, he's relational. And I would also say, you know, really, if you think about the the whole book, the whole book is probably um, some of the best in a, a question that would follow a promise. The promise would be, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in you, right? I mean, that's, so Joseph has this good work God puts in him. He's, it's God who gives Joseph the dreams about the sheaves. Um, but then the question that follows that is, how? How? And Joseph's life, um, one of the things that I do with Joseph's life is I use that, I kind of parallel that. I go, look, here is what we've seen repeated over and over and over again by God in the lives of saints for how he completes his good work in us. There are certain commonalities um, across experiences. And so, so for instance, the dark night of the soul would be one, right? It's, there's certain commonalities. And so in some ways, knowing what's happening gives you a perspective to know that God is actually working for healing. He's, he wants the very best for you. Um, God is not out to get you. And there's so many Christians out there who, you know, the idea of your, your yoke is light <laughs> and not heavy. When Jesus says that, that feels to them like a cosmic joke. And I think it's not easy. It's not easy, but I think it's so key to remember that God is working through you. If he's your Lord, if you believe um, that he owns everything about you, then there's a process to that ownership as well. Of course, the Bible calls that sanctification. And so this is really about God's sanctifying work in the life of Joseph and how it impacts his relationships, how it heals his family, how it reframes, how does he re-navigate you know, that's so many of us, right? Like, I'm saved. Every, everything should be okay now, right? Oh, no, the family's still the same. <laughs> so I've still got to wade into the brokenness that's out there. How do I navigate this? And I think Joseph's life, um, thankfully, tells us how. You know, hearing you say that, and you're talking about how people draw that out, um, th this understanding of, okay, God has used this, God is redeemed, God is sanctifying you, and he's bringing you along. And when you mentioned that cosmic joke, I, I couldn't but help think of when Joseph says, what you intended for evil, this is after his brothers come back to him, God used it for good. That's right. And, and while there's a redemption in that, I, I know that I heard a guy say the other day, you're meaning that God, did God do this to me? Did God make my 
dad molest or did God make me do this? And and it said, no, God allowed within his permissive will, for some reason he's allowed it because evil is permitted to exist within this world. And I know that's not always a welcome truth for people, but God had you allowed, he allowed it, but he's redeemed it. I mean, he's going to use that for you to help other people like second Corinthians. We are comforted. We comfort other people with the comfort we received. I mean, is that a, a wrong approach or how? No, do we- not at all. No, I talk about this in the book. Um, you know, it's your mess and uh, it's not, you know, God didn't create a mess. It's, it's our mess. We created a mess. And there's several facets to that. We inherit a mess. We're born into a mess. We are, uh, we, we have pain inflicted upon us through no fault of our own. It doesn't zero out with your life. You're born into a context and it's a messy world. It's a messy context. And then there is a mess that you actually contribute to. There's because you're a mess, right? Because we're born in sin, which means we do sinful things. This whole notion that says I have no regrets because it made me who I am today is really dumb. Um, I hope you have regrets. Otherwise you're essentially saying you're great. Um, I hope you go, boy, I wish I made a better choice there. That's really not the question. The question is, can God take even a bad choice and do something with it for his greatness and goodness? And it speaks to an almighty, all-powerful God when the answer to that is yes. Maybe a better way of, of explaining that is by asking this question. Can God draw a straight line with a crooked stick? And the answer to that is yes. obviously yes. Turns out God can create art with a crooked stick on, on a scale that we can't begin to imagine. That's really what the book conveys. So it's, it's a book of hope. It's a book it of hope. It's a book of redemption. It's a book of sanctification. Yeah, and hopefully practical help. You know, hopefully just we have questions at the end of each chapter where I just kind of go, okay, let's apply this. You know, here's the, the you see this in Joseph, Joseph's life, right? This is just good exegesis. Here's what the text says. Here's what it means. What are you going to do about it? And um, and so I, I just want to help, you know, in, in I, my pastoral hat is still on in this book. I, I want to help others, as many as possible, see, find hope that God is not through with them, understand that the longing of their heart hasn't been stopped by circumstances, but that God may actually use those circumstances for his glory. If you can look around and go, oh, here's, here's what I need to pay attention to. And, um, you know, rather than hating where you're at, it might be that you're having to learn through that place in your life. And, uh, and, and I, think, I think it's true for me. I think it's true for everybody and anyone who's listening. And I, I, I think that's a tremendous encouragement, something that we all need because we do. I just know talking from so many people feel like there is such a mess and that God can't do anything. And why did this happen to me? So this book is yeah. an encouragement. It's oh, thank you. opportunity for people, I think, to be encouraged and to see God's hand and to turn to him and worship. And so I applaud you for that. Um, Thank and I you. encourage people to, to learn more about your, what you're doing. So give us, give us the details. Where, where are you at? Uh, how can people follow you? Give us the websites and where we can get the book. Sure. So uh, the first place you can find me is gracepoint.us. I'm, I'm a pastor here. So gracepoint with an E dot U.S., 
um, and you can find uh, me there. You can find me on whenwin.com, W-E-N-W-Y-N.com, which is a a new site that has some of the projects that I've been working on, including this one. Uh, You can find me on Facebook. Um, I forget the exact thing, but if you look up Derek Webster, I'm sure you can get to me. On Instagram, I'm Derek So Tweet. Uh, because I think I think I thought I was being clever at the time that I came up with that moniker. Um, you can find me on podcasts on uh, any number of platforms. There's a bunch of platforms that we're on. So I would love to connect with you. Hey, uh, if 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 people are out there, do me a favor, review the book, uh, read it and review it, or reach out to me and and maybe we can find a way for you to to, to create a review. Uh, but I would love to see your review on Amazon. I would love to know how maybe you were helped or challenged by the book um, and love to just engage in a conversation with you. Well, thank you, Derek, for coming on the show. And uh, I would encourage everyone to read his book. Derek's the real deal. I've had a chance to get to know him. I've heard his heartbeat. Hopefully you have too today. I would encourage you to go to those websites, tune into his podcast. You will not be disappointed for doing so. Derek, thank you. Thank you, Travis. And thank you for the conversation. Oh, this was a blast. I appreciate it. And God's best on this podcast, man, and all that you're doing. I appreciate it. You too, brother. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. What a conversation. I hope it was as much of a blessing to you as it was to me to be in it. And if this episode has been an encouragement to you, share it with others. Give us a like, rate this podcast that others might find it easier, and that they may come to experience the joy of knowing Jesus. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go to our Facebook page and interact with other followers of Jesus, the members of Apollos Army, those who want to grow and water their worlds. Each week, we will have questions posted on our Facebook page that you can respond to and interact with. So check that out today because we have questions for you about the conversation that I had with Derek. You'll be glad that you did. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. (laughs) 